You'll notice that we have our Christmas boxes in the back, and the girls have been kind enough to put us a little list within your brochure this morning to give you an idea of items that you might want to purchase for them. And uh, we appreciate Zanya and Carrie handling all, all of that and, and your participation in it also. Uh, Brother, we, Brother Adams, we all love and adore, even though he doesn't think I do, but... <laughs> But I do. We appreciate him so very much, and he will be our speaker this morning. And I'll, also, I wanted to you to note the um, the ones who need prayer, especially uh, in our our church family and the loved ones of our church family. But before we go into into our singing and whatnot, I wanted <laughs> to read something to you today. I have a little book that has talks with God, little prayers. And I don't know about you, but at my house, I have some faulty mirrors. When I walk by those little darlings, I see this old woman looking back at me. <laughs> and I wonder, where has my youth gone? I should be 40 or 50 years of age, not nearly 80. And so I call them faulty mirrors anyway. But this little prayer is a lady that is praying to God, and she says, for the rest of my life. And I thought it gave us food for thought. No matter what our age, God can use us if we allow him to use us in small ways, whether it's singing, whether it's sending a card, whatever, whatever gift we might have. We don't have to simply say, I'm old, I've done my due, and I'm not going to do any more. Listen to what she says. Getting older is one of those things I thought I would, ne would never happen to me, <laughs> but it's happened. God, now a flight of stairs leaves me winded. I've started repeating myself, forgetting things that happened only yesterday. And when I look in the face in that mirror every morning, there's no getting around it. I'm getting old. I've known lots of old people. A few of them were full of life right up to the very last. But some didn't do very much with the rest of their lives. I've been thinking about being old, God. Since that's what I am, I want to be good at it. In fact, I've thought of some things I can do to keep me young on the inside where it counts. There will be times when I'm not feeling so hot, God. Help me to keep it to myself. Nothing is more boring than a long description of illnesses, real or imagined. As long as I can be up and out, that's where I want to be. I want to stay active and useful as long as I can. There are people out there I can help. Maybe just by being there, talking, listening, caring. The pay is no good, but I think I'll like the work. God, help me to love my family, but never to demand their love in return. If I'm the right kind of person, that love will come automatically and naturally. I won't have to ask for it. It will just be there. There are a lot of things about being old that are really pretty funny, God. <laughs> I don't want to forget that. I want to have a good laugh every chance I get. And if the joke's on me, well, that's just fine, too. That's about it for now, God. I'm feeling closer to you all the time. But until we finally do get together, I want to do my best to be what the kids call 
an oldie but a goodie. <laughs> I thought that was good advice for us as we begin our worship service this morning. Would you be kind enough to, to stand up and we'll begin our first song, We Have Come Into This House to Worship Him. Sing the beautiful hymn, Praise Him, Praise Him, number 74. Here is 
on page 66 his name is wonderful Messiah 
go down to your classes right now. I did want to make special uh, attention drawn to the fact this next Wednesday evening we will be having our annual church business meeting at 6.30. So we want to be prompt on that and give everybody an opportunity to vote. Uh, you see a long, long name, a list of names for prayers. Watch, look at each one of them and carry them with your heart this next week and remember them in your prayer. I know they would be very appreciative of that. And before Brother Carvin comes, if you've noted, he's got a, a mighty fine title here. Ready or not, here I come. So I know this is going to be very inspiring for us. Let's have a word of prayer before he comes. Father, we do ask that you bless Carver this morning, may he feel your presence with every word that's spoken, knowing that it is coming from you and that he loves us and he wants us to hear it. We ask your blessings on everything that we do so that God's light may shine through us. We ask in your holy name. Amen. Thank you, Pat. I do believe you love me. Uh, anyone that picks on someone else as much as you do, I've been told that's a sign of love, and you must deeply, deeply love me today. I love you too, sister, and appreciate your ministry. The title, you may remember as a kid, I do, and it hasn't been that many years ago that we used to play, play a hide-and-seek Someone would cover their eyes, count to maybe 20 or 30 or whatever, and everybody else would go hide. And then when you finished your counting, if you were the one to seek out those who were hidden, you would say, ready or not, here I come. Our text this morning is about the ten virgins. And basically, uh, the story of hide and seek in some ways could relate to that because all of us at some time in the future were here were similar ready or not here I come and of course that's referring to Jesus Christ at his second coming in order to understand this 
parable in chapter 25, Matthew 25. We, we really have to go all the way back to Matthew 24 because that gives us the background and the purpose or the reason, the why that Jesus shared this parable. And keep in mind that all the parables that Jesus shared as recorded for us in the four Gospels were something about the kingdom of God. Or sometimes we would call it the church or how one comes into the kingdom of God. How one is adopted into the God's family. So in chapter 24, verses 1 and 2, we read these words. Jesus left the temple and was walking away when his disciples came up to him to call his attention to its buildings. Verse 2. Do you see all these things, he asked? Truly I tell you, not one stone will be left on another. Every one will be thrown down. And of course, he's predicting the fall of Jerusalem, which would take place in 70 AD, about 40 years later. And at that time, the Roman army, under the leadership of General Titus, completely destroyed the temple. All is left today is this what they call the mourning wall. And after Jesus said this in verse 2, the disciples in verse 3 actually asked three questions, but in some case, they are almost as one uh, question. But the first question is this, when will this happen? In other words, when will this temple that has been so magnificent and important to the religion of the Jews, when will this be destroyed? The second question what will be the sign of your coming? This has been so misunderstood by many. In fact, most Bible scholars say that Matthew 24 is the most difficult uh, chapter in the gospel writings, perhaps in the entire Bible. It's not referring to the second coming of Christ, but yet they were asking, when will you bring about or establish or set up your, your kingdom the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God that he had been teaching about for some three years. So he's not referred, they're not asking, when will you come again? The reason being, at this point in their lives, they didn't, didn't even understand that he was leaving. They didn't understand that Jesus would be crucified and then raised from the dead and go back to his father and then come the second time until we get to the Gospel of John, the very night that Jesus was arrested just before his crucifixion. And at that time he said, I will come back. I will come back and I will take you to where I am, of course, referring to heaven. So when the disciples asked, what will be the indication of your coming? Not the second coming, but the coming in the full establishment of his kingdom, which is a spiritual kingdom. And then thirdly, they asked a question. What will be the sign of the end of the age? Now, some have interpreted that as meaning the end of this world, and that's not what they were asking. They were asking, when will this present Jewish society and this method of, of worshiping God come to a closure as you are establishing your kingdom in this world, in our hearts. Well, Jesus didn't give them any timetable. He, he never does. But he emphasized, you've got to be ready. 
You've got to be ready whenever I come, whenever the kingdom of God is established. He said, don't get caught up in trying to predict when things are going to happen. Just make sure that you are ready. And then when we get to chapter 25, he gives us a parable of the ten virgins, which we'll look at in a few moments. But in order to understand that, we have to first understand the traditional Jewish customs of marriages in Jesus' day. Whenever a Jewish man and woman got engaged and decided to become one as a family, they would have to go to some witnesses and they would sign a contract, much as when we do a ceremony in the church, we have a wedding license, then we sign it after the ceremony, indicating you are now legally married. So when the Jewish man and woman came together and uh, presented their idea that we want to get married, they would sign that contract in the presence of witnesses. And at that very moment, they were considered man and wife, even though they would not live together for usually a year later. In our weddings, when we have a wedding, especially in the church, the bride is the central person. She receives all the attention. The groom and the groomsman and the ring bearer will, and the pastor will sometimes come in from a side door. You know, they almost slip in unannounced. They're, they're not uh, readily recognized as part of the, the ceremony. They may come in the back of the church and come in, but the music stays the same. There's no emphasis placed on them entering the sanctuary for this marriage ceremony. But as soon as the bride opens those back doors... As soon as she is standing there with usually her father who's going to give her away, dressed in beautiful, beautiful wedding gown that probably cost more than her first car, to be used only one time, everything changes. All attention is on her. The music changes. People stand. They don't no longer looking up front. They're looking at the bride who just entered the sanctuary. She is the central person. In the Jewish weddings, it's almost the opposite. The groom is the central person. He leaves his father's house on the day of the marriage feast or the wedding feast. He has his friends go with him and they usually take the longest route throughout the city. They'll be singing. They'll be dancing. People will come out of their houses to congratulate him. They want to celebrate with him. And as he approaches his bride's house, people along the way will start shouting, Here's the bridegroom. Come out to meet him. She's there waiting in her house. She has her closest friends with her. She's anticipating He'll come around sundown, which was customary, but no exact time was ever given. Sometime it'd be a little earlier, sometime it'd be a little late. Her attendants would have their lamps. Lamps would be given to them full of, of uh, oil. And when they hear those words, here comes the bridegroom. Come out to meet him. They would trim the wicks of their lamps. 
light the lamps, and then go out with a bride as he takes her to his father's house for this great wedding feast that could last up to seven days. And then the two would live together as husband and wife. But keep in mind, the groom is the central person in this ceremony. Let's read what Jesus tells us about this parable. Matthew, the 25th chapter, I'll read verses 1 through 13. At that time, the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. The foolish ones took their lamps but did not take any oil with them. And uh, that we'll see later, they had oil in the lamps but didn't take any extra. Verse 4. The wise, however, took oil in jars along with their lamps. The bridegroom was a long time in coming, and they all became drowsy and fell asleep. At midnight, the cry ran out, Here's the bridegroom. Come out to meet him. Then all the virgins woke up and trimmed their lamps. The foolish one said to the wise, Give us some of your oil. Our lamps are going out. No, they replied, There may not be enough for both us and you. Instead, go to those who sell oil and buy some for yourselves. But while they were on their way to buy the oil, the bridegroom arrived. The virgins who were ready went in with him to the wedding banquet, and the door was shut. Later the others also came. Sir, sir, they said, open the door for us. But he replied, I tell you the truth, I don't know you. Therefore keep watch, because you do not know the day or the hour. In this parable, all the characters represent something or someone else. For instance, the bridegroom represents Jesus Christ. Throughout Scripture, we see Jesus as the groom who will one day receive his bride, which is the true church, the true body of Jesus Christ, the spiritual body. The five wise virgins, they represent the true church, the bride of Christ. Those who have accepted Jesus Christ as their personal Savior and have been faithful to serve him until they leave this world or until he returns for them. The five foolish virgins are those who are not saved, the non-Christians. They're especially those who claim to be Christians, those who associate with the church. They may come to the church services. They may even work in the church, might even give tithes to the church. But in reality, they are not part of the bride of Jesus Christ. They may be persons who at one time were saved have been forgiven, but for some reason have not remained faithful until the groom, Jesus Christ, comes. And the all throughout Scripture represents the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the one that Jesus said in John chapters 14 through 16, I will send to you. I'm getting ready to leave. I'm going back to my Father, but I won't leave you as orphans. I will send you my Holy Spirit who will be in you, and he is the assurance or the guarantee that you're part of the bride of Jesus Christ. Why did Jesus use the number 10? I am not definite on this, but I will give you some possibilities. The number 10 was a number of perfection, just like 7 and 3 in Scripture. 
The number 10 was also the minimum number of men who had families that were necessary in order to form a synagogue in a local community, village, or town. There had to be at least 10 of them. And then 10 was the usual number of lamps that were given those who escorted the uh, bride with their groom back to his father's house. Regardless of why he used the number, it's kind of really irrelevant. I just thought it interesting to throw those out. But the thing that is most important that we realize about this parable is that all of us, everyone who's here, everyone who's ever been born in the history of mankind, everyone who will ever be born will one day hear those words. Here comes the bridegroom. Come out to meet him. You see, every time we hear the gospel of Jesus Christ, whether it be the first time or the thousandth time, we at that moment make a decision what we're going to do with the message. You will do that today before you leave. You will either accept what God is saying to you or else you will reject it. You will not leave here undecided. You will make a decision this morning. In about 20 minutes, what will I do? Will I accept Jesus Christ as my personal Savior? Will I be faithful to him all the way until I leave this world or else he comes? You'll make that decision today. I will too. And that decision, regardless of what it is or which it is, will affect your life. And there's one thing that we cannot escape. We cannot escape that destiny, that meeting of Jesus face to face. We will not be able to hide, as in the book of Revelation says, people will call for the mountains to fall on them and hide them from the face of Jesus Christ, but that won't be possible. But when we see him face to face, then we will have a better understanding of why Jesus came why he gave us all these parables in reference to the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, and what he is trying to say to those disciples today. I want to share with you, I believe it's four points I have in your outlines. Things that I see from this parable that I think are very important. And I hope that you have your outlines in front of you as I go through this. Number one, our destiny with Christ will be when we least expect it. Notice verse 6. At midnight, the cry ran out. Here's the bridegroom come out to meet him. For over 2,000 years now, we have tried to determine, or some have, when will Christ return? And I admit that some people get so obsessed with trying to discover that, that it's really useless because there's no way to determine. The only thing I can tell you with certainty today is sooner than it was yesterday. For some, it will be today. I preached a sermon once. A man came to the service I knew was not a Christian from his actions, from his lifestyle. He'd never professed to be a Christian. In fact, he never came to church except to maybe Easter or, or Christmas 
But he came one particular morning. It just thrilled my heart. I just I prayed, God, speak to him today. For this may be the only time he gets to hear the message. Well, God might have spoke to him, I don't know. But to my knowledge, he did not accept Jesus Christ as his personal Savior. And to my understanding, that was the very last time he entered a church or heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. Notice what Jesus said in verse 6. At midnight, at midnight, the cry rang out. In other words, the groom did not come at the customary or traditional time at about 6 p.m., about sundown, as most people would have expected. It was some six hours later while they were sleeping. At midnight, they got up from their sleep. They trimmed their lamps. They lit their lamps and was ready to go out and to meet him. But five of them realized my oil's run out. In other words, the Holy Spirit had left them. They were no longer serving Jesus Christ. If only the groom had come six hours earlier. If only he had not delayed. If only he had not waited. It appears from this parable that all ten would have been ready to meet him. But that was not the case. You see, none of us, regardless of how educated we may be or regardless of how well-versed we are in God's Word, none of us have any clue as to when Christ will come. No signs are given in Scripture. I challenge anyone on that. But rather, we are to be ready as if He will come today. Uh, back in the 80s when I was pastoring in central Arkansas, Henry Staggs, a boy from, man from uh, Louisiana, as many of you know him, he was pastoring the First Church of God in Little Rock, and I was at Grape Chapel just 25 miles away. And he said, let's change pulpits today. You preach in my pulpit, and I'll preach in yours. And the first thing I noticed when I got up into his, his pulpit, and I felt honored. Henry was one of the best evangelists the Church of God had during my day anyway. But I saw a little sign. It was a plastic sign like you put on the doors, exit doors or whatever. It said these words, Today could be the day. Now, I don't know why Henry put it there. I don't know what he was thinking, but it registered to me that today could be the very day Christ could come back. Or today may be the very day that someone hears the gospel of Jesus Christ for the very last time. And ever since that day that I preached that pulpit, I enter every sermon with this thought. Give it your best. Give it your best. There may be someone out there today who's not ready for Jesus to come. And this may be the day, the very last day, they hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. I saw a documentary some years ago about uh, the British explorer, Sir Ernest Shackleton, as he was exploring the South Pole. For, for some reason, he left some of his men on Elephant Island. Strange how an island in the South Pole could be named after an an animal that spends its life in the tropics. But nevertheless, 
He said, you stay here and I'll, I'm going to leave. I'll come back. He was going back, I think, to get supplies or something. But when he tried to come back, the ice flows, the icebergs had come together and blocked the way so they couldn't get his ship back to where his men were on that island. And after some time, the icebergs began to drift away and there's a clear road, if you would, in water to where Elephant Island was situated. He quickly went through that passage, found the men there, and he made this statement. And I quote, It is fortunate you were all packed and ready to go. End of quote. His men replied, and I quote, We never gave up hope. Whenever the sea was clear of ice, we rolled up our sleeping bags and reminded each other the boss may come today, end of quote. They were confident that he would come, even though they didn't know when. And any time the ice parted so the ship could get through, they were ready to jump on board. You see, our destiny with Christ will be when we least expect it. And we are to be ready have our bags rolled up and reminding each other today could be the day. All of us have loved ones, no doubt, who are still in sin. I do. And it is my prayer that before it's too late, they will accept Jesus Christ as their personal Savior before the ice goes back together and they cannot get to him. I see a second important thing in this text this morning, number two in your outline. Many will not be ready for their destiny with Christ. Look at verse 8. The foolish one said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, our lamps are going out. Now according to this parable and according to Jewish tradition, all ten of these virgins had received an invitation to go to the marriage feast, to be a part of the celebration. All ten wanted to go because they were there with the, uh, the bride. All of them appeared to be the same. They were all given lamps to light the way as they made their procession back to the groom's father's place. They knew each other. They associated with each other. No doubt they attended the same synagogue in that area, but there's a major difference between these five foolish and the five wise. The foolish ones were not faithful to the end. Evidently, they weren't being renewed daily or continually being filled with God's Holy Spirit, which is represented by the oil. The oil ran out. From all appearances, they appeared to be part of the bride's party, but without the reality. Again, I thought about as I was working on this, why five and five? Why five wise and five foolish? There again, I cannot tell you for definite reason. I heard a sermon preached several years ago, well, in fact many years ago, back in the 70s if I'm correct. And that pastor believed that approximately one half of all those 
who profess to be Christians, one half of those who attend churches, one half who profess to be disciples of Jesus Christ in reality are not ready for him to come back. In 1990, 85% of the people in our country claimed to be Christians. Today, some 30 years later, it has dropped down to 65%. And they tell us, especially from the writings of George Barna, that only 22% of the people in our country even attend worship services regularly, and that percentage is going down every, every year. From reports from missionary societies that measure the spirituality of people all over the world, they tell us that really only about 12% of the world's population are ready for Jesus to come back. Jesus was once asked this question. It's recorded by Luke in the 13th chapter. Lord, are only a few people going to be saved? He said to them, Make every effort to enter through the narrow door, because many, I tell you, will try to enter and will not be able to. For once the owner of the house gets up and closes the door, you will stand outside knocking and pleading, Sir, open the door for us. But he will answer, I don't know you or where you come from. Then you will say, We ate and drank with you, and you taught in our streets. But he will reply, I don't know you or where you come from. Away from me, all you evil doers. In other words, Jesus was saying, many, many people claim to be my disciples. But when it comes down to it, in reality, they're not. They may attend worship services. They may even work in the church, have some sense of, of leadership in the church. They may even give their tithes and their offerings, but... When it comes to meeting Jesus face to face, they're not ready. So that's the case of so many today. A third thing that I see in this text, our destiny with Christ will be very personal. I take that from verse 9. No, they replied, there may not be enough for us and you. Instead, Go to those who sell all and buy some for yourselves. My grandmother Adams was a very saintly woman. Out of all her sons that uh, survived infancy, two became pastors. Two became head deacons in their church. Only one was not very active, although... I understand he was a Christian, but not as active as the others. Four to six of her grandchildren and great-grandchildren became pastors and missionaries. I have a cousin serving right now in India on the mission field. What I'm saying is, when I stand before God, as saintly as my grandmother was, and most of her family... I won't stand there with the Adams family. I won't stand there as a part of a certain congregation or denomination. 
I will stand there all by myself. For I alone must give an account of the life I have lived up to the time I meet Jesus face to face. You see, we come to Jesus personally. My dad was a pastor. My son's a pastor. Neither one of them could save me. I could not take from their faith and apply it to my own heart to be saved. Even though dad and my grandparents gave me a rich heritage in the church, I learned from them, but I could not inherit their salvation for my own. I myself had to go to an altar. In fact, it was when I was eight years old and Henry Staggs was preaching that I went to an altar and asked for forgiveness. For all of us one day, we'll see Jesus face to face. As Jesus said in Matthew, I tell you that everyone will have to give an account on the day of judgment. We can get by with a lot of things here in this life. There's not complete justice. I hate to say it, but the bad guy doesn't always get what he punishment he deserves, and the good people don't always get the benefits they deserve. But one day we'll get what we deserve. For all of us will stand before him and give an account. But we will stand not as a congregation, nor as a Christian family. We will stand there alone. The last thing that I see in this text I think is worthy of our consideration. Number four. At the time of our destiny with Christ, there is nothing else we can do. Look at verses 10 through 12. But while they were on their way to buy oil, the bridegroom arrived. The virgins who were ready went in with him at, to the wedding banquet and the door was shut. Later the others came also and said, Lord, Lord, they said, open the door for us. But he replied, truly I tell you, I don't know you. One of the most dangerous doctrines that I hear today in our culture was displayed in a movie, which I didn't watch the movie, I didn't read the book, and I didn't agree with the doctor, so why I do so? I just knew what it said. But it's this, uh, it was a movie entitled Left Behind. The main emphasis of that, that movie in the book is that uh, Jesus will return one day to take all the Christians back to heaven, those who are still living, but then all the non-Christians will remain on earth for a period, some say three and a half years, some say seven. They will remain on earth and given the opportunity because they say Christ will come the third time to deliver those who got saved during that time of tribulation. That would be good. It would give a lot of people hope. To know that Jesus is coming one time, we see him coming, we know we've got to get serious about our relationship with him. We've got three and a half to seven years to get right with God. Christ is coming a third time. I'll be ready this time. There's only one problem. It's not found in Scripture. It has nothing to do at all with the Bible. The Bible says Christ will come a second time, not a second time. And third time, he's coming one more time. And that is why Jesus said in Luke, 
make every effort to enter through the narrow door. Once the owner of the house gets up and closes the door, you will stand outside knocking and pleading, Sir, open the door for us. But he will answer, I don't know you. At that time, whenever our destiny is, whether we die before Christ comes the second time or whether we're still living and he comes at that time, it won't do any good to offer any more prayers for that person's salvation. There will be no more chances to say yes to the invitation of forgiveness for the day of invitation stops when we die or when Christ returns. All the opportunities will be over. The door will be shut. I have preached over 100 funerals according to my, my journal. And I would say probably 75% were probably Christians. It was, of course, easier to preach their, their home going. We knew they had a better life. But I have preached some of people I never met before, did not know. Some that I knew had never made a decision for Jesus Christ, never attended church, lived very sinful lives. And every time when I stood at the head of the coffin and people came by to give their last respects, I cannot count how many times people would say, even though the person never lived a Christian life, they would say, well, he's better off now in heaven. And I just want to shout out, no. No. I've heard Christians say that. Christians say, well, he's better off now. He's in heaven. I attended a funeral several years ago. I wasn't the pastor and so glad I wasn't. He was the nephew of the church secretary where I was serving at that time. And the guy was in his mid-30s, lived a very sinful life, used illegal drugs, I don't know what all. But one day he took his shotgun and killed himself in front of his wife and his father. I just cannot imagine the emotional turmoil they went through. I went to the funeral to support our church secretary more than any other. That was really the only reason I went. And the preacher got up and said this in the sermon. I know he never attended church and did not live a Christian life. But he was saved as a boy in vacation Bible school here. And I think he said 10 or 12 years old. Therefore we can rejoice that he is with the Lord. If I thought that was possible to live that type of life and be ushered into heaven, I would release my ordination papers today and never, never, never preach, teach, or mention the name of Jesus because it is so contrary to God's word. Many of that young man's friends were there who lived the same type of lifestyle. And I kept thinking in my mind that preacher has given them a false hope that they can continue to live in sin and when they die go to heaven. It, it bothered me. It bothered the church secretary because she knew herself the type of life he had lived. You may remember the great gold rush that took place in the Klondike, Alaska and the Yukon, the south or the northwest part of, of Canada uh, many years ago. I think it was probably a hundred years ago. 
I, I read a story, I've read story, I've seen documentaries on that great gold rush and very, very few people got rich. I think the ones, most of the ones who got rich were the merchants that sold stuff to the, the uh, gold miners. But the story told of uh, some gold miners, some prospectors that were go up in the north country and they came upon an isolated cabin, log cabin, that was no doubt a miner's cabin during that time. And they walked in and saw the skeletons of two men. Men had died years earlier, but they also found a large amount of gold. They had been very successful in their efforts in their mining. And they looked on the table, and there was a letter that was written by one of them just before he died. And he described all the gold they found, more money than they would ever probably spend in their lives. But he said, we got so busy getting the gold out of the mines, getting it out of the streams. We forgot that in the North Country, the winters come very early and they are very harsh. And they woke up one morning and indeed all night snow had come down, not inches, but feet of snow. Continued for several days and they were not able to get out of that cabin and after their food had run out, they laid down and died in the midst of all that gold. As I thought about that story, I realized that so many people today get so caught up with our careers, our physical lives, and, and they're necessary, it is important. We get so obsessed, maybe even with our families, that we f don't make plans for the next life. See, all of us will die physically, but all of us will also live forever in one of two places. That's scriptural. In fact, Jesus spoke more about the reality of hell than he did heaven. But sometimes we get so caught up in the present life that we keep putting it off. Keep putting it off. Well, I'll wait until I'm able to retire. I'll wait. And for so many, it never takes place. Either God's Spirit no longer deals with them, or they become so callous that no longer can hear Him. Many, many reasons. Ready or not, Jesus says, I'm coming. I'll be honest with you, I don't like to preach these type of sermons. If I had my brothers, I'd get up here and give you a more hopeful sermon. Something you could celebrate on your way to dinner or to your homes. But this is the message God told me to preach today. I do not know for whom. Ready or not, we have a destiny with Christ. And chances are it will come when we least expect it. And according to Jesus, the majority will not be ready. But it will be very personal. We will stand by ourselves before him. And once that takes place, there is nothing that you, I, our families, our friends, our members of the church can do. That destiny is sealed for eternity. I'm going to ask that you bow your heads and be in an attitude of prayer. 
I trust you will allow the Holy Spirit to examine your heart. There may be someone here today who has never accepted Jesus Christ, His love, His forgiveness. And if you were to go out into eternity today, you may not have the assurance that heaven would be your home. Or there may be someone here this morning who's gotten discouraged and you're just wondering, well, maybe God doesn't really exist. Maybe this Bible is just another book that was written to give us a, a little bit of hope, but it's not real. Or you may have family members who are not ready. Friends who are not ready. And you may want to come and just pray for them and keep them on your prayer list until they come to a point where they accept Jesus Christ. I don't know what particular needs you may need today. God does. And chances are you do also. If you'd like to pray by yourself, you can come to these front pews. Sit, kneel, stand, whatever you feel most comfortable doing. But if you'd like me to pray with you, I'm going to ask that you come to the altars. Regardless of your need, are you ready? Are you ready? Let us stand together as we sing and give the Holy Spirit the opportunity to speak to our hearts. Let us stand together. Number 456 in your hymnal, I am thine, O Lord.
you, Brother Garvin, for that beautiful sermon. Let's have a word of prayer as we dismiss. Lord, we so thank you for your presence being here with us today. We thank you for giving these words to Carvin so that we might be reminded once again of what is expected in our lives, in our relationship with you. We pray that you be with each person here as they go out this week. Remind us of these words, Lord, and that we are servants of thine and our lives should so show that. We ask this in your precious holy name. Amen.